The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, June 27, 2021, on the basis of verses from Mark chapter 5. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. It's been said that the pulpit is no place for stereotypes, but here goes. There's this idea that's been floating around out there for a few years now, that when it comes to problem solving, men generally want to rush in and fix things, and women generally just want to feel heard. More recently, I've heard it phrased as being solution-oriented versus feelings-oriented. And by their very nature, those two tendencies don't really serve each other all that well. I mean, to be sure, there's, there's a place for each of them. Both of them are very important. But the way it works out, generally, is that men tend to rush in and hurdle right over the feeling stage of the, uh, of the problem-solving process. And even with the best solution in hand, that might just come off as insensitive. Ladies, on the other hand, understand the value of just being there. Not necessarily as another voice, but as a hand to hold, as a shoulder to cry on, as ears that can just listen. Now, I'm not interested in getting into the nitty-gritty of which one is better, to the, better than the other, which one is more practical than the other. I'm not even all that interested in explaining to you how, I, how true I've found this to be over three short years of marriage. But I bring it up today because if you can believe it, Jesus was a man. And he liked to fix things. He was also a carpenter, so that helped. But more notably, here at least, he was a man. And several times in the gospel, we, we see that our Savior is so solution-oriented that his comments can sometimes come off to us as insensitive. And the gospel for this morning was one of those times. Because to the people involved, the problem at hand was not solution-compatible. It was death. You know, with, with disease, there's hope. Even miraculous hope for disease, but dead is dead. And to try and fix things when it comes to death will only ever insult the grieving. It's in the face of that problem that Jesus speaks up to a devastated father and and, and puts his hand on his shoulder and says, just believe. And to a room full of of mourners, he he pipes up, what what are you crying for? This girl isn't dead, she's, she's sleeping. And both those statements are far too optimistic, far too solution-oriented for human experience to fully accept because the problem to us is unsolvable. But today and throughout time, Jesus has proved that 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 unsolvable problem is no problem for him because he is the solution. And because he is the solution, he has made that unsolvable problem no problem for you. Now, it's no secret that throughout Jesus' ministry, his biggest rivals were never out-and-out pagans, never straight-up unbelievers. It was the Jewish religious leaders that that always gave Jesus trouble. It was the, the people of his own tribe and his own faith, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the synagogue leaders. And when we look at what they do, the pattern of what they most often come to Jesus with is testing. They love to test Jesus, to find out what they can about him, to to prove that he is the Messiah, or rather from their point of view, that he is not the Messiah. And this day was different. 
A synagogue leader named Jairus, who was a rabbi of sorts, comes out seeking Jesus in faith. In faith, not to gain faith, not to gather more proof about Jesus, but because he had faith. And dire circumstances demanded that faith be exercised. So the phrase, this is not a test, had never been more applicable. Because his little girl, his only child, was not just sick, she was at death's door. I mean, and the phrasing of that shows us that Jairus doesn't even know if he's made it out the door before his daughter drew her last breath. He has no idea, but he's desperate. And when he comes to Jesus, Jesus willingly, happily accepts. Wonderful. Problem solved. Case closed. Everything's going to be fine. But if you look at the, the actual reading that we had for this morning, you'll notice that there's a chunk carved out of the middle. Because what we actually have here is two stories, two separate stories, which support each other. En route to Jairus's house, Jesus runs into a woman in desperate need who needs healing, and he, and he heals her. And it's sort of a long, drawn-out affair, but it couldn't wait, at least to Jesus. For Jairus, it must have lasted an, an eternity. We don't know how long it took, but however long or however brief that, that encounter was, it was time enough for Jairus' friends to track him down in the crowd and give him the news that his daughter was dead, and that he ought to stop bothering the teacher. Their faith in Jesus went up right up to that point of death and stopped there. It was there where they said, Jesus, we won't, we won't waste your time anymore. I mean, don't worry about it. We, we, we get it. You're a teacher. You're a miracle worker. You're not, not what? Not who? To them, it didn't matter. Dead was dead. There was nothing that could be done about that. And that's only natural. Because all human experience tells us that death is the ending that cannot be rewritten. It is the ante that cannot be upped. The soul can't be crammed back into the body by human hands. There's just no solution to death. Only that murky, gray, grieving process that never really ends, but which is all that's left to those behind to cope with it. And when does that hit us harder? When does that whole problem strike us more deeply in the heart than when it's a child, a young child, when the fact that this is somebody's son or daughter is made all the more evident by the fact that you have grieving parents standing over that coffin, or when it suddenly strikes you just how small they have to make coffins. That's a pain that goes beyond eloquence. It's a heartbreak that surpasses our ability to describe it, because pretty words can never describe something that ugly. But beyond that profound sense of loss, and beyond even the realization that life is fragile, we also see death in ourselves, even as we go on living. We, we realize that our souls are bound to bodies that slow down, break down, and self-destruct no matter how well we take care of them. And aside from that, maybe you've lived long enough in a sinful world to see just how forth, forcefully things like guilt and regret and hopelessness can push a person towards their grave. Thinking on these things, St. Paul exclaims in his letter to the Romans, who will save me from this body of death? In other words, who will deliver me not only from the pit of hell, but from the hellish march towards it? Whether it's others or ourselves, death runs through everything we do and everything we know and leaves nothing untouched. Like I said, that's a pain beyond eloquence. 
And in that moment, Jairus may have felt all of that and more, but none of the words bouncing around in his head were able to lay hold of it. It was just he was numb, stone-faced. But as Jesus tended to this other woman, he wasn't distracted. He overheard this development. But that word, overhear, in the Greek, can also mean ignore. And I think both of those, both of those, both of those words fit very nicely. Because he definitely overheard in this noisy crowd, he overheard this new development. But in that same moment, he also ignored every natural implication that it had. And it was then that Jesus brings out the first of his solution-oriented statements in this account. He says, don't be afraid, just believe. Just believe. Or more accurately, keep on believing. Or rather, don't stop believing. Today that phrase, just believe, sort of has this vapid, platitudinous connotation. It's been Hollywoodized and twisted into, this, this, into something that makes believing a matter of, of clenching really hard until you get what you want. And it turns belief in on the believer and leaves us without you know, a reliable object to cling to. When Jesus tells Jairus, just believe, what he means is, the stakes have been raised, Jairus, but you came to me in faith. You came trusting in me. Follow through. And this reaction tells us something powerful about Jesus. Because his reaction shows, shows us that this girl's death is a concern for Jesus, but it's not a problem for him. In Mark's gospel so far, Jesus has already demonstrated power over the wind and the waves. We heard about that last week. When they landed on shore, he showed his power over the unseen world of demonic forces. He's shown power over disease and disability, even power over crushing guilt. And what's left? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Jesus shows no fear or uncertainty on his way to handle it. Now back in the home of Jairus, the silence of death had been filled with the tearful screams of the living. Not only the girl's family, but the professionals. These, these hype women who, who for a small fee could supplement any of your funerals with, a, with an acceptable amount of grief. And Matthew's version of the story tells us that there were even flute players in there, livening up the mood, giving, giving ambiance to this sad scene. And so the scene that Jesus walked in on was an even blend of genuine and we'll say commercial sorrow. But regardless of their sincerity, none of them were ready to hear what their solution-oriented Savior had to say. Because he greets them all with, why is this commotion happening? What's up with the wailing? This girl is not dead, but sleeping. And to the grieving, that sort of feels like an insult, doesn't it? Because euphemisms are just little, little fibs that we tell ourselves to soften the impact of reality. Sleeping doesn't, doesn't soothe the problem of death any more than living on the streets makes homelessness sound like an adventure. And of course, for the professionals, this is just bad for business. If this girl is not dead, they don't get paid. And so they all give Jesus grief. Now, some people, some people suggest that Jesus is saying that this girl is only comatose. She's not really dead. But Jesus hadn't even seen the body yet. He had just walked in the door. And more than that, Consider who we're dealing with here. He's a healer. He knows all. But this isn't a, a medical or scientific declaration. This is, an ex, this is an expression of what Jesus understands about death. Because it's a matter 
of body and soul. And just as the body holds the soul until death separates the two, death holds the body for a time afterwards. And Jesus calls that sleep. But we see how forcefully death holds the body in that sleep. We see it in the way that traumatic death mutilates and twists the human body. We see that in the way that disease reduces the human body to a shell of the living person. And we see that in the dust and the ashes that death makes of all people. So Jesus doesn't call it sleep because it's pretty or because it's peaceful. But he calls it sleep because he will wake us up from it. On another occasion, when Jesus raised someone from the dead, Jesus told a grieving sister through tears of his own, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. That is the center of our faith. This is the hope that we hold. This is the promise that we just believe in. And it's the ultimate promise. Because Christ endured death like a lamb. And from the very grave that swallowed him, he devoured it like a lion. So that the loss of those that we love is not made any more bitter by its finality. So that we ourselves may die with peace in our hearts and a hymn on our lips with no fear in our minds. So that when he calls us from our graves, death must surrender to everlasting life. But that's all for later. In the meantime, Jesus does something totally unrelated. He takes this dead girl by the hand, and with a simple yet powerful word, he tells her to get up and brings her to life. Not with a, 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 some magic formula or some long drawn-out spell that, that worked in ways that we don't understand, but with the simple fatherly jostling of, of, sweetheart, it's time to get up. He did it to comfort the grieving. He did it to restore a family. But above all, Jesus did what he did here so that the select few that he brought into the room with him might believe in him. And I can confidently say that because guess what? Every person that Jesus ever healed, every person he ever freed from demons, every last one of the 5,000 that he fed, and yes, every person that he raised from the dead is now dead. That little girl was raised back, right back to the same life that killed her. She woke up in that same world where disease and violence and sin put children like her into an early grave. But what she did get, and what her parents got, was life-saving faith in the one that raised her. Faith that would grow throughout her new life and empower her as she crossed that, crossed that threshold of death for the second and final time. And so what Jesus proves here is that as a solution-oriented Savior, he goes beyond what human experience expects or even knows to ask for in fixing the problem. For instance, Jairus learned that if Jesus could heal the sick, he could certainly raise the dead. What this little girl hopefully took away from this is that if, if Jesus could bring her back to this sad life for what in the grand scheme of things was just a few more years, then he would have no problem raising her to a life that never ended. And what we can take away from this then is that if God can snatch back the living from every kind of death, then there is nothing stopping him from taking the waters of baptism and his holy promises and saying, my child, I say to you, get up and pouring out everlasting life on a child.
Baptism is a resurrection of its own. Where God drowns the sinful nature in water and raises the new person up by his word. So that these children are no longer our own alone, but God's. And St. Paul writes in his letter to, the Galatians, letter to the Galatians that because you are his child, God has made you also an heir. An heir of eternal life. An heir of everything that he is and everything that he gives. An heir of an inheritance that neither perishes nor spoils nor fades away. That is a solution. Amen. Amen.